And let's get to the latest on the COVID front. Here's vaccine researcher. She joins us each and every Wednesday at this time. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is on the line and joins us here on 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, let's start with the uh, vaccination rate because we seem to be doing terrific uh, here in the province, so much so that we've uh, bumped up Ontario's reopening to this Friday. Some, though, Dr. Gorfinkel, feel maybe that's even a little too cautious. Are you comfortable where we are right now in the province and with the reopening coming at the end of the week? I am comfortable with it, and I think we have no choice but to be cautious. How many times do we have to be literally flagellated to realize that this is not a virus that can be underestimated. Take a look at how rapidly that variant is spreading in Peel region. A month ago, there had been zero cases, and now there are 115 cases identified of that B1617 variant. And that's the problem with this, that the variants are not as, the vaccines we have are not as effective against that B1617 variant after a single dose. So it really truly is a race between the variants and getting people vaccinated, not with just one dose, but with two doses. And the reason for that is because there's such a massive difference. So consider even the B117 variant. How effective is Pfizer after a single dose? So two weeks after a single dose, it reduces cases, symptomatic cases by 50%. Way better at hospitalizations and deaths. But even AstraZeneca, you're talking about a 50% reduction. Now compare that to what happens after that second dose. Two weeks after getting the second dose, It's a massive difference. For Pfizer, it goes to 93% vaccine efficacy against symptomatic doses, massive differences. And when you talk about that B1617 variant, it's, it's, it's again, it's a repeat of that same thing, only worse. One dose only gives 33% efficacy, whether it's AstraZeneca or Pfizer. It's that second dose that locks it into 88% with Pfizer and 60% with AstraZeneca. Major differences. That's why that second dose is so critical. Okay, so has our strategy then been a bit flawed in hindsight? Because, you know, weeks, months ago, we were trying to just get that first dose in as many arms as possible. Would it have been better considering the Delta variant now and what we know is to go into hotspots like Peel and make sure we get as many people fully vaccinated in those hotspots as possible? I think even looking back, the decision was the best it could have been with the limited vaccine supply we had. And I think even hindsight tells us, for one thing, masks majorly work. That's an aside. But when it comes to vaccines, especially with the limited supply we'd originally had, getting them in as many arms as possible was in fact the right choice to have made. Now we're facing variants that may be less you know, the vaccines may be somewhat less effective. And that's why we have to be extra cautious. But even with that, you know, we're talking about reductions in symptomatic disease, not in hospitalizations and deaths. When it comes to hospitalizations and deaths, both vaccines, even after one dose, are highly effective. But the key is we've got to keep those numbers way, way down because we've seen how rapidly that B1617 variant, let's call it by the real name because it's not called that anymore. That variant first identified in India is now called the Delta variant. And that variant can spread and does spread much more rapidly than both the original variant and the B117 variant had. 
All right. With the reopening phase one set for Friday, and again, that's about three days ahead of schedule, people are op- optimistic that phase two might get bumped up. As a matter of fact, doctor, we were talking to the owner of a, a barbershop, a hair salon uh, yesterday, just desperate to once again get open. They've been closed since November. It has been a long, long time for hair salons and gyms and personal trainers to be able to uh, work. Is it possible, do you think, that phase two could get bumped up as well? Or is a lot of this going to depend on how many second doses we get out and what the Delta variant's doing? I think the wise way of approaching it is this. How many people are vaccinated with the second dose? That's one metric. But also carefully counting how many cases there are, how many hospitalizations there are, and how many deaths there are. You know, so this is critical. It's it's not any one of those things. It should be all three of those things. You know, so the and, and the reason for that is because we have data out of the UK giving the vaccine efficacies that I just described. But what we're lacking here is could the variants that we have in Canada be different? And that's a question that we we really don't even know yet. So we have to wait and see. Because that Delta variant, guess what? It's got three subvariants. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? There's three subvariants. So variants, subvariants number Delta one, Delta two, Delta three. Well, Delta one has been identified. What was in the UK had been Delta two, and Delta three. Well, heck, Delta three. You know, we think that's not coming here, and we don't think that poses much of a threat. But we may be a little different than the UK in seeing a lot of Delta one when they had a lot of Delta two. All right. So can we assume anything? I don't think so. Yeah. Is it known just how effective the vaccines that we currently have are against the, uh, I'll call them the variants of the variant that you just mentioned? Yes, it is believed. Well, we know from the UK, when it comes to Delta two, the Indian variant B1617, that variant is effective, the second subtype. But we are uncertain of how effective the vaccines are against the Delta B, sorry, I, the variant one and variant three, the subvariants. So it's confusing, I know. But the second variant, the one that had been in the UK and in India, that one, it is effective against. But right now, the cases that have been identified are largely in the, B, the Delta one variant, not the Delta two variant that had been in the UK. So that's the thing. There is some uncertainty there. We're hopeful, but do we know? No, there's always questions. And that's why caution makes more sense here. All right. As more and more people get the second dose, there's more and more confusion about what life should look like, Dr. Gorfinkel, for the fully vaccinated. Does the federal government, do they need to issue some guidelines here soon, much like the CDC did in the States weeks ago? Oh, we so need it. I'm getting questions all the time in my family practice. I'm vaccinated with one dose. This is by far the most common question. I'm vaccinated with one dose, can I see my grandchildren? And you know what? There are no clear guidelines for that as yet. And what about once I've had two doses? Can I get together with other people who've had two doses? Almost certainly the answer is going to be yes. I don't see why not. But that said, NACI has to issue guidelines, and those guidelines, of course, are not binding. So what is NACI? The National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, that's a federally funded body, a volunteer body, incidentally, which meets weekly to give guidelines for the rest of Canada that the provinces and territories can or may not choose to follow. 
So yes, we definitely do need guidelines. Generally, they have followed NASA's guidelines, but they're they're greatly lacking right now. And Dr. Garfinkel, for the fully vaccinated, I think there's a lot of questions around the face mask and whether or not you still need it. What's your take on that? There is so much confusion. First, we hear one message from the CDC. Now, this is the United States. Once you're fully vaccinated, just take off your mask and forget the physical distancing. That's actually what the guidelines say in the U.S. But here, I think we can afford to be a little more nuanced than that. This is not a one-size-fits-all. First of all, none of the vaccines are 100%, as I've just said. So that's something to keep in mind. If someone is really at higher risk, even after getting vaccinated, it certainly makes a lot of sense to wear the mask in the high-risk zones. The problem is we over 50% of people who get COVID do not know where they got it. So you have the 50% are like household contacts. Household contacts are a very big thing. You know, so you can't always stop it. But once you're fully vaccinated, the likelihood of going into hospital, the likelihood of dying from COVID goes way down. But the likelihood of symptomatic disease is still very much there, both after AstraZeneca and after Pfizer. They're not promising to be perfect vaccines. What about if you're pregnant? That puts you at higher risk of preterm labor, a lower birth weight child, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, and even stillbirth. So, you know, for and many of them have not been vaccinated, which I find very concerning because now, according to the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they should be. But that said, you know, even if they get vaccinated, it would make sense because it's not a perfect vaccine. We don't have that. And there's questions also around how perfect the protection will be against the variants of concern, including the emerging Delta variant that B1617 first identified in India. So we there is there is caution. And I think we need to be nuanced in the approach. All right. Is it going to come down to a personal choice, a personal decision, do you think, uh, in the end? I think there's a lot of people, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, they're thinking, okay, I'm done with the uh, face mask. But is it the case of being fully vaccinated or do we need a certain percentage of the population to be fully vaccinated before we really consider uh, getting rid of the face mask? Absolutely. That percentage of the needs to be vaccinated is controversial. So how, 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 many, how many of us have to get vaccinated before we can get rid of the mask? No one would argue if 90% of us were vaccinated, we could get rid of our masks, almost certainly. But we're far from that right now. And what happens is as we approach 80%, the number of vaccine hesitant people loom large. So we need to address vaccine hesitancy I'm happy about how that's getting addressed, but I think there's a group we'll never reach, no matter what. So there will be a background number. Um, We look to the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations. My personal feeling is if enough people are vaccinated, 80% of of the population is vaccinated in the micro location a person is in, and that person has been vaccinated, almost certainly they could get rid of their masks unless they're very high risk. I also wanted to ask you, uh, there is word this afternoon, the federal government is set to announce sometime today that the fully vaccinated uh, Canadian traveler will no longer need to spend two weeks, 14 days in quarantine upon arriving home. Now, apparently the report is that that change will not go into effect until early July. So it's still two, three weeks away. But uh, what do you think of that? That's a big time difference because we are vaccinating at a ferocious rate right now. 
Canada's receiving 2.4 million doses of Pfizer every single week. And the race is getting them into the arms and we are stepping up to that plate fast. So two to three weeks time, more of us will be vaccinated. So therefore the disease will be spreading less through the population. And that's why, you know, perhaps that is not needed in people who are vaccinated. There are still questions around, does vaccination reduce transmission? However, emerging data appears that it does reduce transmission. So it's it's encouraging. I cannot wait to get back on the plane to see my mother. I haven't seen her over in, in over a year. So it's it's time. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people feeling that way. And this obviously dropping the quarantine uh, in the next few weeks is going to have a big, big uh, implication or big implications for the travel and tourism industry. Uh, just finally, Dr. Gorfinkel, this afternoon, I want to talk to you about long haulers and long COVID. That is a term that we haven't heard in a while. Uh, did the vaccines, did they take care of that? I only wish they did. You know, there are some reports stating that people who had long haul symptoms were getting better after getting vaccinated, but that is by no means the cure. And for for many, that wasn't the answer. So looking at a recent Stanford study that was published just in the JAMA, this is just a couple of weeks ago, they looked at how many people are affected. And what was fascinating is that it's worse than we think. You know, according to their numbers, these are confirmed cases of COVID-19. Some 40% of individuals continue to have, you know, fatigue. And despite being so tired, they were having trouble sleeping. And then there was one in five who suffered depression. Like this blows away the numbers we'd originally heard, which was only 10% of people having COVID having long haul symptoms. Well, that's pretty scary because that has real implications if you're an employer of one of these individuals, if you're a loved one of these individuals having to pick up the slack, and likewise, if you're a healthcare worker. So what are we to do? I've got a whole long wish list of what I want for long haulers. And on top of it, of course, is a cure. On top of that list is understanding how long do these symptoms actually last? We don't even know. So a lot has a lot more research has to be done in this area, especially you superimpose variants that raises a whole nother question on this. So we, we have to take long haulers very seriously. I personally suspect that the study was overestimating the numbers a little bit simply because they're counting only confirmed cases of COVID-19. And what we know is that 40% of people who get it have no symptoms, and many of them never get tested or couldn't get tested initially. So that's going to overestimate how many people actually have long COVID, but it is significant and it is something that we have to take very seriously. And do we know why some people are so-called long haulers and others can have COVID and not even know it, not even feel it? We've got all kinds of theories. And this is so interesting. So the question is, does the virus remain in individuals and continue to cause damage? That's one theory. Another theory, does the virus cause damage and then it's the scar tissue which causes the ongoing symptoms? And you know, scar tissue where? Scar tissue in the brain, scar tissue in the lung. Inflammation, that's a third theory. Or autoimmune disease, does it cause, does it trigger the body to react against its own tissues? against its own lung, against its own heart, against its own kidneys potentially. 
Like we don't know the answers to these. There are theories right now. And then as I say, you just superimpose all those variants and that raises more questions. You know, so we definitely need to have more research on this to have better answers. I, you know, my heart goes out to long haulers and many of whom, you know, are my patients. I see what it, what's happening in this realm. What we need is a multidisciplinarian clinic to approach it because they need a combination of specialists, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, even massage. I mean, I'm an all employees step up, like any, anything that may be helpful, I'm, I'm interested in for these patients because it's not a one size fits all when it comes to treating long COVID. All right. Always appreciate your time and providing us with the answers, Dr. Gorfinkel. Thanks as always. And we'll talk again next Wednesday. Many thanks, Jeff. Always a pleasure. All right. There's Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, vaccine researcher.